If you have your copy of Scripture, we're in the Gospel of Luke this morning. Luke chapter 22, verse 66. Luke 22, 66. And we're going to read through chapter 23, verse 56. We're continuing our series, Jesus Is. This morning, we're looking at Jesus Is, the crucified Christ. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. When day came, the assembly of elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And so they said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. And then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. And then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And then Pilate said, The chief priests and the crowds, to the chief priests and crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. And when Pilate had heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jews, he was very glad, for he had long desired, or saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. And so he questioned him at some length, and, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. And then arraying him in splendid clothing, sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold... I did not find a man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city, and for murder. Pilate addressed him once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. And so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. And he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And therefore followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children, for behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nurse. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things, when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? And two others who are criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. The people stood by watching, 
But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering sour wine and saying, If you are the king of Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light faded and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw this had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds who had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts, and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. And this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then he took it down. He wrapped it in linen shroud and laid him in a tomb, cut in a stone, where no one ever yet had been laid. It was the day of the preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning, and the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray, Father. Thank you for your word. I pray as we look at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, that it would speak to us in a way perhaps that it's not spoken to us before. May we understand why Christ was crucified. May we feel the weight of our sin. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Most people don't like to hear about Injustice taking place. In fact, uh, we sometimes get angry when we hear about injustice. In 1931, eight black teenage boys were sentenced to death for the rape of two white women by an all-white jury. A ninth boy was only 12. He was judged too young for the electric chair. The trial took just a day, and the lynch mob demanded the surrender of the teenagers outside the jail before the trial ever began. The only lawyers that could be found to defend the accused included a retiree who had tried a case, hadn't tried a case in years, and a Tennessee real estate lawyer who knew nothing about Alabama law. The conviction of these boys led to demonstrations in the heavily black neighborhood of Harlem in New York City. The case eventually found itself in the Supreme Court where the convictions were reversed because of the lack of adequate defense. Charges were ultimately dropped against four of the men. Three of them were resentenced to life in prison, and the fourth man named Clarence Norris was resentenced to death. Later, it was reduced to life in prison. Governor George Wallace pardoned Norris in 1976. In 2013, the Alabama Board of Pardons and Paroles voted unanimously to issue posthumous pardons to Patterson, Weems, and Andy Wright, bringing a long overdue end to one of the most notorious cases of racial injustice in all of U.S. history. This case is known as the Scottsboro case. It still stands as a reminder of unfair and racially biased convictions when it comes to the courts and sentencing. We come to the section in Luke's Gospel when Jesus faces his capture and his arrest, the authorities place him on trial, which results in his conviction and later his crucifixion. A miscarriage of justice. 
There are three scenes I want us to see in this passage of Scripture this morning. And there are some lessons that I trust that we will learn as we look at these scenes. The first scene that we're going to look at is the court scene. Without truth, there can be no justice. The court, without truth, there can be no justice. From verse 66 of chapter 22 through verse 25 of chapter 23, we have this courtroom scene where Jesus is before the council and then he's before Herod and then Pilate and then back to Herod. But what I would like for us to focus on in this courtroom scene is the truth. The truth. And first, let's look at receiving the truth. In verses 66 through 71, we have Jesus appearing before the council, which is the Jewish lower court. Verse 66 tells us that it is the elders of the people. They are also known as the Sanhedrin, and they were the highest religious court that you had in Israel. They want to know whether or not Jesus claims to be the Messiah. Jesus knows them all too well, and he knows that they willfully oppose the truth, and he knows that they're really not seeking the truth. However, notice the Lord answers their question, and his answer um, is that he not only claims to be the Messiah, but he uses this title of Son of Man. And they immediately understand his claim, that Jesus is making this claim to be God and they and they reject the truth that he gives them. Now when it comes to the truth there are a lot of things that can be done with it. Here we see that it's used to condemn someone who is entirely innocent. They use the truth to condemn Jesus. The truth is more than just a set of facts. Because facts must always be interpreted. For one to arrive at the truth, we receive the facts and they must be accurately interpreted. Here, the religious leaders receive a plain and truthful statement about who Jesus is. They know the facts from his own mouth but they deny the truth because they do not accurately interpret the facts that they're given. And so they deny the truth and they condemn an innocent man. So we must receive the truth. Next, let's see that we must stand on the truth, standing on the truth. In verses 1 through 5 of chapter 23, we have Jesus in Pilate's courtroom, which is kind of like the state supreme court. The Jewish lower court would have killed the Lord right there and then. However, they had a problem. The Romans had conquered Israel, and because the Jews were under Roman occupation, they couldn't sentence anyone to death. It wasn't allowed. Only Rome could sentence someone to death. And so the Jewish court refers to this case to the state Supreme Court. And they bring the Lord to Pilate. And in verse 2, we see they change the charges. Jesus is accused of, according to the verse, misleading our nation. Opposing payment of taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. They change the charges. The first two charges are total lies, and the last charge is a manipulative attempt to get them to sentence Jesus to death. So you see their purpose is to paint Jesus as a public enemy, public enemy menace. He's a threat to the Roman government. They're willing to go to any length to denigrate the name of Jesus Christ. They're trying to say that Pilate won't be loyal to Caesar if, if he doesn't condemn Jesus. Pilate, if you want to be loyal to Caesar, then you've got to condemn this man. And so Pilate questions Jesus and he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? 
The Lord admits it plainly. You have said so. One of the other Gospels tells us that Pilate felt superior because he told Jesus he had power over his life. However, the Lord responds with, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had not been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. John 19.11 And he tells him that his kingdom is not from this world. Jesus is not just the Messiah, but he is Lord and King of all heaven and earth. He is King over all. Pilate wraps up his interrogation, finds that Jesus is not guilty. Verse 5 tells us that the priest insisted that the Lord was a threat to the government, and we see this public opinion interferes with justice. We have a failure to stand on the truth because public opinion. And we cannot try things in the court of public opinion. That's not how trials or the trying of anything is supposed to work. It's not supposed to be the court of public opinion. I've heard that. I I think I've heard that. I don't know. Maybe a hundred times this week. We're going to try this in the court of public opinion. We're going to try this in the court of public opinion. We're going to try this in the court. I don't care about public opinion. It doesn't matter. We must stand on the truth of God's word. That's what matters, not public opinion. But what does the word of God say? And we stand on that truth. Never abandoning the truth so we we receive the truth we stand on the truth and then we must never abandon the truth verses 7 through 12 jesus is before before herod's court which is a court of jurisdiction and so when they're trying to put the pressure on Pilate to do something they slip up you look at verse 5 they make mention of galilee And that is all Pilate needed. Oh, I can reassign this case to a different jurisdiction. And so he sends the case to Herod. Now, Herod's a vile and corrupt man, but he's not stupid. He knew about Jesus. And so in verse 8, he wants Jesus to do some miracle for his amusement. It would seem that this is the only reason that Herod really questioned him at length. However, the Lord, it says, remained quiet as religious leaders accused him. And as Herod and his soldiers mock him, the entire place is a three-ring circus. No one is interested in truth or justice. Everyone has their own agenda. And the only righteous person in the entire place is the one that's being mocked and put on trial. And after Herod's had his fun, he mocks him and he sends him back to Pilate. Now look at verse 12. It says, on this very day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Now in verses 13 through 16, we have the summary judgment. When they went back to Pilate, and Pilate then called together the Jewish leaders, and in verses 14 through 16, Pilate gives his verdict, and he finds no guilt in Jesus, neither did Herod, and Pilate sees no reason to put the Lord to death, and so he decides to try to make some sort of compromise. He will punish Jesus, and then he's just going to release him. I'll, I'll punish him, and then I'll release him. Now listen to me, this is absolutely mind-boggling. Pilate, after considering all of the facts arrives at an amazing conclusion. Jesus is not guilty. He affirms the Lord's truthfulness. But look how blind and hard-hearted Pilate is. He doesn't stand on that truth. He doesn't stick to the truth. Instead of standing on the truth and doing what is right and delivering justice, he refuses to embrace the truth and abandons it. 
Let me read from you, for you from another gospel, the Gospel of John. Then Pilate said to him, So are you king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Pilate says, What is truth? Astonishingly enough, the, the Bible says in John chapter 8, verse 38, that the truth will set you free. But it will only set you free if you acknowledge it. That's the only way the truth sets you free. Pilate refuses to acknowledge the truth. He refuses to free Jesus, and therefore he did not free himself either. Pilate remained bound by the deceit of sin. And then in verses 18 through 25, we see the courts of public opinion again. And what they deem is the truth. There are times that the official courts are not as powerful as a court of public opinion. In this courtroom scene, the court of public opinion is the last court we see. They charge Jesus with being a threat to the king, stirring up the people against the government, false charges. And now we see them asking for the release of a man who had been thrown into prison for rebellion and for murder. Pilate tries to talk with them. They shout him down. Crucify him! Crucify him! They're now an angry mob. And mob justice is no justice at all. Pilate insisted that the Lord was innocent, but they continued to cry for his death. The voices of many won out over the truth. Their cries prevailed over justice. Their voices prevailed over the power of Rome, and Pilate gave them what they demanded. He releases Barabbas, handed Jesus over to their will, it says. Oh, church, may we never abandon the truth. May we never abandon the truth. May we never confuse the will of people with the will of God. May we not allow the loud voices that we sometimes hear to drown out the truth of the word of God. We must never, ever abandon the truth as a body of believers. But not only that, but let's see requiring true justice. How can true justice be obtained? The only way to have true justice is to care more about the truth than we do about ourselves. You see, the moment that we sacrifice truth, justice will be miscarried. So the moment we say truth doesn't matter, justice gets miscarried. The only ones that can make sure our system of justice actually delivers justice are those inside and outside who will be a voice for truth. The only, the only ones that can say, okay, we want to make sure justice is never miscarried are those people that are a voice to say what matters is the truth. Whenever you have a judiciary of people that are ruled by their own political interests, they will soon give the people what they want or desire rather than what is right because they will sacrifice the truth. Anytime you have a public that is ruled by their own selfish desires, they will twist the courts to serve their desire instead of serving justice and truth. You know what the problem is? Justice requires noble character and courage to stand for truth and for 
truth based on conviction. You see, we can't be a people that bring accusations against others with no regard for truth. We can't. It doesn't matter how much the world wants to do it. It doesn't matter what's going on out in the world that, that just wants to bring accusations without the truth. We cannot, as a people of God, be that kind of people. We can't be public servants that render judgments because we fear people. And we can't have the interests of an untruth public align with the interests of unfaithful servants. If leaders handed over Christ, who was an innocent, they said, okay, we're going to hand him over to death. What do you think is going to be done with lesser men? You see, courts can only give justice if they care about the truth. True justice requires truth. That's scene one in the courts. We have to be a people that care about truth. Let's move on to scene two, the crucifixion. Without humility, there can be no forgiveness. Without humility, there can be no forgiveness. The crucifixion. Prideful people don't ask for forgiveness. And if they do... It's not because they're asking out of humility. It's because they are self-seeking. We've moved from the courtroom to the execution. And there are three areas I want to notice concerning forgiveness. First, we see this company of mourners. The company of mourners. As we look at verses 26 through 31, we notice that as Jesus is led away, he's followed by a crowd of people and they're mourning. The Roman soldier sees this man named Simon of Cyrene, Cyrene being the place where he's from, which is modern day Libya in North Africa. According to verse 26, Simon was just kind of happening by it, it says that he was coming from the country. We have no clue if he even knew what was going on. This poor guy just kind of coming from the country probably sees all this stuff going on. He's like, I wonder what's happening. And they seize him and they say, you carry this guy's cross. And he is made to carry the cross of our Lord as Jesus follows behind. So we have Simon and Jesus and the soldiers and a large crowd followed him, including women who are lamenting and they're mourning him. The scene that is pictured is one that's heavy with grief as Jesus walks through the crowd. This man that thousands upon thousands of people have followed. This man who has healed the sick and the blind, who has fed 5,000 people who has performed all of these miracles, this man who is innocent, all these people are coming behind in their mourning, and the whole scene is filled with grief. And he's surrounded by all this grief, and yet Jesus makes it clear that they should not be grieving him but should be weeping for themselves. Look at verse 29. The Lord makes it clear that things are going to get so bad that the people are going to go from rejoicing at the birth of children to blessing women who can't have children. People are going to want mountains to fall on them then look at verse 31. Jesus is saying that if these things happen when the wood is green to one who is innocent like himself, like Jesus, then what's going to happen later when it is dry to sinners like them? They should be weeping for themselves. They should be weeping for humanity. To put it plainly, Jesus is saying if he, an innocent man, the innocent one, the righteous one, was made the object of such ill treatment and plunged into suffering, what's going to happen to those who are actually guilty? Condemnation is coming, Israel. Condemnation is coming, world. 
Listen, without humility, there can be no forgiveness. And the first act of humility is to admit before God that His judgment is righteous and it is sure and it is deserved. That's the first act of humility. Oh, the weight of my sin, God. Your judgment on my sin is right and it's deserved. And I know it's coming. We have the company of mourners, and then we have the crowd of mockers. As we look at verses 32 through 38, we see that there are those who are ready and willing to mock our Lord. Verses 28 through 30 give us some context for what he says. It says the place called the skull, they come to Golgotha, they, they lift the Lord and the two criminals up on the crosses. People stand by watching helplessly. The Lord is surrounded by soldiers and religious people. And here's the thing. By their actions, you can't tell the religious people apart from the soldiers. They mock him. They divide his garments. And the religious rulers scoff at him. They take the claims that Jesus made about himself. They use them against him to shame him and ridicule him. Remember, the Lord is being sentenced to death for being who he claimed he was. He said he was the Messiah of God. He said he was the chosen one. He said he is the son of God. And the soldiers mock him. They say, if you are the king of the Jews and save yourself. They place a sign over his head. It's meant to add insult to injury. This is the king of the Jews. Perhaps it's intended to put the Jewish people in their place by making an example of Jesus. The religious leaders don't really like the sign. They object to it, but Pilate insists on it. God uses the scribbling of mockers to make the cross a throne. Now in this whole scene, the Lord says one thing found in verse 34. One thing in this whole scene. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Remember verses 28 through 30? Judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. Condemnation. However, he makes it clear that God forgives. And in the middle of his agony, the Son of God prays for sinners. And he proves that forgiveness is possible even for the most despicable of people. God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so we see the crowd of mockers. And then we see the conversation of thieves. In verses 39 through 43. There's the Lord and two criminals have a conversation. The first criminal began to yell insults at Jesus. He's hanging on the cross, receiving his own death sentence. And with his final breath, he decides that the best thing for him to do is to mock along with everybody else. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself. And us, some people will go all the way to their condemnation, ignorant and unrepentant. The second criminal rebukes the first. The other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And the best part is that the criminal then says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, I know that sometimes we struggle when we hear of a deathbed conversion, though I'm not sure why, because this man is in the final moments of his life and he came to believe that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the son of the living God. He believed that Jesus really did have a kingdom, one that he could enter into, and he saw his sin for what it was and admitted that it was wrong. And he did the only thing that he could possibly do. The one thing that he needed to do. He pleaded with Christ for him to have mercy on him and to forgive him. Amen. 
Apart from Christ, this thief is the only humble person in the whole scene. He's humble enough to admit that he's a sinner. He's humble enough to admit that he needs forgiveness without humility. Church, there can be no forgiveness. In this entire conversation, Jesus speaks one line. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now let's put it all together. Jesus says judgment is coming. God is a forgiving God. Paradise is offered. The only ones who receive that offer are those who are humble and admit their sin and confess that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross to atone for their sins, was raised from the grave three days later. Now, if you are humble enough to confess your sins and turn from them and call on the name of the Lord, God promises that he will forgive you of your sins and he clothes you in his righteousness and heaven will be your home. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And it's truly good news. It is good news to a thief that's hanging on a cross. It is good news that a criminal in their moment of execution can be forgiven all because of this good news. It means that people in their moment of death can latch on to the good news and have eternal life with Christ in heaven. The same good news is offered to you today if you're not yet a follower of Christ. I pray that you will have humility. I pray that you will admit that you are a sinner, that you will acknowledge that God's condemnation is righteous and it is coming. I pray that you will realize that you can't save yourself, but you need a Savior. I pray that you place your trust in Christ, who is your only hope. The Bible plainly promises that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Don't doubt it. Do it. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Amen. For the Christian, you've already received the good news. God's already given you humility. We shouldn't therefore act as if we are somehow superior because of our humility. We should not repeat the arrogance that we sometimes show people who are not Christians as if somehow we've earned our salvation because we were smarter than other people. The truth is, we were stubborn and we rejected the truth in our sin. We were just like everyone else. The truth is, we've received grace from the Lord Jesus Christ. The truth is, He's given us kindness and faith, and it has enabled us to admit the truth of our condition. We once boasted of our own goodness. Our, our own superior moral actions. We used to rely on self and thought that somehow that was going to turn away God's wrath. And all the while, we claimed to be good in ourselves. We were rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only path that is to salvation. But now the Lord has claimed us. Now the Lord has changed us. And He has given us the eyes to see Jesus Christ. We, When we were unable to see the truth about ourselves, we were better able to see the truth of Jesus Christ. Now we are free from guilt. Now we are free from shame. Now we're free from the agony through faith in Jesus Christ who redeems us. No fear in death. No guilt in life. This is the power of Christ in us. Oh, church, that we would know Christ and the crucifixion and understand without humility there can be no forgiveness and that we would call others to forgiveness scene number three the commitments the commitments without focus there can be no lasting commitment one of the hardest things for people to do including me is to remain focused. My mind seems to go everywhere all the time. So I, I try to focus on something and it's like I got 50 bazillion things where my mind's at. Sometimes I'm up here preaching and my mind's off somewhere else. I know that you're like, well, I don't even understand that. Neither do I. That's why I struggle with it. But, but we must remain focused if we're to have a lasting commitment. Jesus commits his spirit to the Father. 
Jesus commits his spirit to the Father. For three hours there was no sun in the middle of the day. Christ had been crucified. The hour of his death has come. All of heaven cloaks its face when the sun was to be the strongest and the, and, 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 and the brightest darkness has covered the entire land. God gives a sign that something miraculous has happened. God tears the curtain in the temple in two from top to bottom. And the curtain that once was a divider between the most holy place where God was sought to dwell and only a holy priest could enter in from the, from the court where the commoners would worship. They weren't allowed in there. And God says no more and divides it. Now in the crucifixion, in the tearing of the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the tearing of the curtain, and two, there's now no curtain between God and man. Now every worshiper of God may go into the presence of God as priests. Do you understand that? That as a, as a follower of Jesus Christ, in you lives the Holy Spirit. You now have access to the very throne of God as a priest. Wow. Then Christ cries out with a loud voice, Father, in your hands I commit my spirit. An act of declaration of faith or a declaration of faith and an act of trust. The Son of God models for us what we, what should be our confession in our life. We are to commit our lives into the hands of the loving Father, no matter what comes our way. So it was with Christ. In the hour of his death, our Lord focuses his attention on his Father. The Father who sent him into the world. The Father who prepared for him a body for him to be in. The Father who ordained that he should suffer and die. That same God is worthy of our commitment. No matter our circumstances, no matter what comes our way, let us by God's grace learn to declare just like Jesus did, Father, in your hands I commit my spirit. The hands of God will never lose you. The hands of God, you cannot slip through his fingers. Nothing can ever pluck you out of his hand. We must focus on the Father just like Jesus did. Must drive, must, that must drive us in our commitment and understanding that he is in control of all things and there's nothing that could possibly on the face of this earth, I love what it says, on the face of this earth, nor principalities, nor powers, nor anything that you can ever think of that can separate you from the love of God. Praise the Lord that we'd be committed to God. Joseph commits Jesus' body to the ground. Even though Joseph was a member of the council, he did not agree with the decisions of his fellow leaders. He did not participate in their actions. He's looking for the kingdom of God, and he knew that Jesus was a teacher of the truth. And so Joseph requests the Lord's body from Pilate and buried him in an unused tomb. And Joseph had the courage of his convictions. The time had come for him to stop being a secret disciple and to start making a public profession of his faith. He understood that even though his faith in Jesus was personal, it could not remain private. Yet Joseph committed Jesus' body to the ground. But more importantly, he was committed to Jesus. Joseph does not know it yet, but in three days, his grief will be lifted. In three days, the tomb will be empty. In three days, Christ will rise from the dead in glory and power. Joseph's focus will be on the resurrected Christ, and he will see Jesus more clearly on that day than any other time in his entire life. He will see Jesus not in grave clothes, but he will see Jesus clothed in glory. Joseph commits his body to the ground. The disciples commit themselves to the Sabbath. Next we see the Jewish women. They're on the scene. 
It's a day of preparation for Passover, and so they can't handle the body or they will be unclean for Passover. The Sabbath approaches and they must make preparations. They will go back to the tomb in a couple of days. In the meantime, they prepare for the Sabbath, which was part of the law. We can't imagine the grief these women have felt. They knew Jesus. They talked with him. They walked with him. Imagine how their hearts must have been broken. They return to what's familiar. They do what they always do. They're not yet focused on what's to come. Because they still don't understand it. They don't know. Well, this is what we always do. He's gone. Sabbath is coming. They don't know that Jesus will rise from the dead. They don't understand that a grave can't hold God. Soon they will see when they visit the tomb and find it empty. But what about us today? What about us? We must be a people of truth who receive it, who stand on it, who refuse to abandon it. We must confess the truth that is God is coming in judgment, but he also forgives and offers heaven. Will we remain focused on Christ and his gospel? Will that focus drive us deeper in our commitment to Christ and his gospel? No matter what happens until he comes again, we can certainly be like others. And we can slide into the lie that religious observance is going to gain us favor with God. But it won't. We can certainly think, well, if I just do the right things, if I just do these spiritual things, it's going to be favor with God. But it won't. We could be like Joseph, who was overwhelmed with mourning that he forgot the resurrection. Or we can be like Christ, committing our spirit into God's hands for safe keeping. Saying, there's my spirit, God. When we embrace the truth, that's how we end up. Say, so God, I understand the truth. I don't understand why all this is happening. I don't understand the suffering. I don't understand the pain. But here's my spirit. I trust you. I trust you. Don't you get it, Christian? Jesus going through more pain than you will ever know. Ever. And I don't say that lightly. Some of us have been through some pain. But Jesus went through more pain than we will ever know. And I'm not talking just about him being crucified on the cross. I'm talking about a separation from God the Father who turned his back on him. He said, Lord, why have you forsaken me? He went through more pain than we will ever know. Forsaken by his father became sin for us. And he says, God, I commit my spirit to you. Oh, that in our pain and suffering and hurt and heartache, God, I know the truth. Commit my spirit to you. Amen. Oh, that we would be like Christ. Have you embraced the truth? Have you committed your entire life to the Lord? That's what I ask you in closing this morning. Have you committed yourself to Christ? If not, I beg you to do that. Commit yourself to Christ and his salvation and you will never be disappointed. 
Maybe you're a Christian and you're like some of the people in this text. You're going through the suffering today. I'd say commit yourself to Christ. The love of Christ and the life that he gives will far outlast your present suffering. Whether it be the mourning that you're going through. Whether it be the mourning of a death. Whether it be the confusing confusion or disappointment. Commit yourself to the one who will faithfully keep you until all eternity. Listen, we know more than those in this chapter that we read. Because we know he rose from the grave. We know that he was victorious over death, over our enemies. Oh, that we would be committed to him, knowing his joy and knowing at all times we are safe in his hands. And in this world of many sorrows, in this world of many pain, in this world of much suffering, what will you do for Jesus who loves you so much that he was crucified, dead, and buried for your salvation. And noble men and gentle women, not to mention the boys and girls who love Jesus, do everything they can to show his love and share his compassion. Will you? Will you? In a moment, we're going to sing a song. Be standing right down front. I want to challenge you this morning. If you've never placed your trust in Christ, maybe for the first time the gospel made sense. Jesus died, suffered for our sin, was separated from the Father for, for a filthy wretch like me. Oh, that you would humble yourself and seek his forgiveness. I'll be standing down front. Maybe you need to do that today. Maybe this morning, maybe this morning you say, I need to commit myself to the Lord. I don't know what you're going through. Oh, I pray that you would commit yourself to the Lord. And, and if you need prayer, I'll be down there. I'd love to pray with you. Or you can come up here and pray on your own. Or, or you, can, you can pray in your pew. But I would challenge you. We're going to be taking communion a little bit later. challenge you to make sure that your heart is faithful. To the Lord in all ways. Let's close with prayer.